So it's Valentine's Day and we all recognize, I think, um, that the love, the kind of love that we highlight on Valentine's Day, like romantic love, um, isn't quite the same as what Doug was talking about. Right? It's an aspect of it. Um, but it's not exactly agape love, right? A, a godly kind of love. But, but I think we also recognize, and I think we also, I mean, it, we, we intuit. We, I get the impression that this was on purpose. Um, that human love, Valentine's Day love, does give us a glimpse into our Father's heart, right? Gives us a, gives us a pretty good idea of how he feels about us because we have this experience of, of romantic love. Um, a couple weeks ago in the first half, the first part of this two-part mini-series on love, we looked at the idea of love as a dance, right? Perichoresis, we've talked about that before, that Greek dance that the early theologians kind of zeroed in on as just the perfect description of the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their relationship, right? This dance of movement that you, you there's three separate, but, but they are in perfect unity, perfect giving and, and taking, um, and we're invited to share in that dance regardless of how badly we dance. And, and last couple of weeks ago, I shared uh, my first dance. This morning, I'd like to share my first kiss, if it's all right with you. Her name was Marty Gomez. Uh, this is not a picture of her. This is, I think, Topanga. <laughs> I'm not sure what the show was called. I, I didn't watch it, but I... What was it called? Boy Meets World. Boy meets World. So I'm in the fourth grade, <clears throat> and I had recognized that girls were very different than boys. Right? And, and, and while I liked the difference, I wasn't terribly sure that girls had really any utilitarian practical purposes, right? right? They, they, they certainly didn't make my life as a fourth grader any easier, right? My sisters and uh, just, um, I mean, they were easy to look at from afar, but there was no real reason for me to close that gap between me, a boy, and them, a girl, and how different and distance we were. I had no real desire to close that gap in any, any way, shape, or form, but um, Marty Gomez had other plans. Somehow, I, I can't imagine, that, but Marty Gomez decided at some point in that fourth grade year that either she would be happier or I would be happier or we would both be happier, right? We would enjoy an abundant life if we kissed. I, I, and that's the only thing I can assume, you know, out of, out of what followed, Right? So we're in fourth grade, and it's in the afternoon, we're watching a film, and her two silly friends, I remember their names, Patty and Sandy, Patricia and Sandy, and they're giggling, and they're looking at me, so I know something's afoot, right? And so Marty Gomez, she's directed to the six tables, all look, you know, looking at each other, you know, group, grouping, um, and she says, I got a secret to tell you, duck underneath the desks. <laughs> and, I, and I knew something was afoot, right? I knew, and I wasn't interested in, I mean, she was a very nice girl, you know, all that, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to get my first kiss, right? And it's not going to be my mom or my grandma, which is going to be kind of cool, because those really didn't do much. So I've got a secret to tell you. So I get underneath, and, and I, like, I, like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of open to it again, because I'm... I mean, so she's leaning in. We're underneath the desk. You know, you can picture this. It's dark, and she's leaning in, and I'm beginning to lean in, and I'm a little bit confused because I'm not sure if she's going to tell me a secret or if there's something else afoot, right? And so I'm leaning in. I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And she's going to kiss me because, like, I've had a dog lick my ear, and it's not very cool, right? And it's like, she's going to kiss my ear. I'm like, that's not going to work. I don't want that to be my first kiss. So I'm like, and, and she kissed me. 
And, and for the life of me, I, I don't know what happened next. I do not know how I got back into my chair. I know we didn't get caught. I, I don't know. It, it, I think I blanked it out of my memory. I tried to think of what happened next as I prepared this week, but I could not think of what happened next. But my thought is, as I begin to think about this, is the risk that this girl took, right? I could have started screaming bloody murder underneath that desk. I could have just destroyed that girl, and she had to have known that. And yet she decided to lean in anyway. Strange as it sounds, I believe that that kiss perfectly demonstrated the holiness of God. I'll get to that. Two weeks ago in the first part of my series, again, Love Is, we, we jumped to one of the defining passages when discussing love and God, right? This is 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so today I want to look at another somewhat similar God-defining passage. This is from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 13. And, and those of you, Peter was a, a, an apostle. Um, he went on to become the first bishop of the church in Rome. Um, he didn't get a gospel, right? But he wrote some letters at the back of your New Testament. And in his first letter... He says this, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, and that's not necessarily not drunk, it's just fully aware, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. See, Peter had been going on and on to his audience, the people who were writing about how just amazing God was in Christ Jesus, just how amazing this gift of the Savior was. And he, just, he was just going on and on and on. You guys are so blessed. You're so blessed. You're so blessed. And then he makes this crazy statement, a rather startling statement. And it's a statement that we still have struggled today. We, we, people all around the world, Christians, they, they struggle with this. They like, <laughs> here's what he says. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you were lived in ignorance. And this was read for us just a bit earlier. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And, and, and that, because it's written, if, if you dig back into the book of uh, Leviticus, not Exodus, Leviticus, uh, chapters 19, 20, 21, chapters 11, quite a, if you read through the book of Leviticus when God is kind of laying out his laws, he kind of keeps attaching this phrase, right, this catchphrase. It's like a dozen times to the book of Leviticus. You find it in the book of Deuteronomy. You find it in some other places. This, this crazy phrase is, you know, do this, do, don't do that, do this, don't do that, because you're to be holy just as I am holy. And that phrase keeps repeating. I don't know where he's quoting exactly from, but it's throughout the book of Leviticus. And again, we probably have our own ideas. We've developed our own ideas of what it means to be holy, right? Um, does it mean that we're pious, we're perfect, we're sinless? Right? That we dress and talk and behave a certain way? Or is it that we perform rituals, religious rituals? That makes us holy? Or is holy, and this is a pretty prominent idea, holy is kind of a separated from a, a leaving society and going up onto a mountaintop, a hermit, a monastery, 
And if we look at ourselves in the mirror, kind of like, um, or if you've ever read the book Portrait of Dorian Gray, he'd go up into his attic and he'd look at this portrait of himself, and somehow this portrait didn't show him what he looked like on the outside. It was all beautiful on the outside. It showed him what he looked like on the inside. And I think sometimes we look in the mirror and we look at our insides and we think, I'm not holy. I'm so far from holy, and yet God's calling me to be, he's telling me to be holy because he's holy. It's like, God, how can I, how can I do that? And yet, you know, Paul, in a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he writes this, this is the first chapter. For he chose in him, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before we're even born, he's like, you will be holy, right? And if you could have spoken, you would have gone, what? <laughs> Help, please. The writer of the Hebrews makes it even clearer says this in chapter 12, says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy because without holiness, you will not see God. Now, that's got to stop a few of you. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I clearly have a misunderstanding about holiness because in my opinion, I am not holy. And this says that to see God, I got to be holy. So this is important information. This, this is critical information. So how do we arrive at this belief that we can't actually be holy? even as God is holy. How, how, did, how did this happen? In a book, Holy Trinity, Holy People, uh, T.A. Noble, professor of theology at our Nazarene Theological Seminary, he points out two kind of clo well, very closely linked uh, ideas that we have, that we've, we've gotten, that leads us to believe that holiness is impossible, right? And they're faulty, um, And it leads us to believe that not only holiness is not only possible um, in our lives, but according to Scripture, it's the expectation, right? It's the, this is what we're supposed to be. Both issues begin with the way theology books are written and the way, <laughs> you're going to love this, the way us pastors are trained. All right, so it's kind of our fault. Let me show you. This is, this is, this is a, a sample of a table of contents. This, this is actually taken from an actual book. Um, I don't know if you can see the problem yet. Okay, it's not very obvious. Um, you notice that God is in chapter 1, and then we got a few evil and humanity and sin, right? And, and then in, finally in chapter 5, we get to Jesus Christ, like, like there's God. And over here, there's this completely different, completely different entity, this, this Jesus Christ. And then we, we talk about salvation. And then we, we talk about this third person, this Holy Spirit. And then usually at the end of a lot of theology textbooks, the, the Trinity's got its own little chapter. And it's kind of, I don't know, an afterthought. The problems are birthed when we start with the definition of holiness or the holiness of God minus Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's like somebody evaluating me and knowing only about one-third of me and then deciding that is Jerry Carter. Well, they, they, there's no way they could know only one-third of me and know me fully. And yet we dig into the Old Testament. Many Christians worldwide, we dig into that Old Testament. We learn all about God minus Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We, it, it, you got to be reading, reading kind of kind of carefully and pointedly because it's very easy to arrive at this is God and then Jesus arrives in the New Testament the Holy Spirit arrives in the New Testament the book of Acts and like there's this, this separation and somehow God becomes three with the book of Matthew and <laughs> nothing could be further from the truth 
the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's kind of, as you go through the Old, Old Testament, um, you get the impression, and it's not true, not true at all, um, that there aren't the other two. They arrive when we start talking about our personal salvation, but that's nothing to do with God. Kind of becomes this personal thing. And the first thing that we run into in chapter 1 of our textbooks is this rather incomplete picture, this, this word picture, this definition of the word holy. And it's accurate. Here's, here's what you'll read. You, you look into any of your theology books that I know you got sitting around at home that you're digging into all the time. Holy means not only sanctified or separated unto God or separated for His purposes unto God, um, but also different, distinct from everything that is common only God is different, distinct from all things, hence He is holy. Holiness is His nature. Now, the first problem, the first issue becomes apparent when we begin to contrast holy with words like profane or unclean or sinful, right? Our definition of holy then becomes without sin rather than love perfected. And those two ideas are radically different, right? You can live a life without sin and never, ever, ever run into a person, Never, ever. You can live a life of not doing anything overtly wrong, sins of commission, and yet never bump into another person and do a loving thing in your life. That, that's not holiness. It's not love. Well, the contrast is real, holiness and profane or unclean and sinful, but that, that, that's not the whole picture. That's only a partial picture. The separation between the two isn't the whole story, right? To stop at just the idea of separation, right, leads to a rather short-sighted and a very, very faulty therefore, right? Since what is regarded or, excuse me, what is separated is regarded as out of the ordinary. So you got the humanity and God calls out a group, right? We're the called out ones, right? That's, that's the, the, the biblical definition of a follower of Jesus Christ, the called out ones, and we get this idea quickly in our heads that that over there is profane, unclean, sinful, and this over here is special, and it's extraordinary, and it's out of the ordinary. Well, that leads us to believe that all of life is sinful and unclean. That's not the case. It's not the case at all. Very short, very, very negative and incomplete understanding of holy his birth. Holy slowly morphs into otherworldly, right? And, and world denying, right? If I'm holy, I can't be, I got to stay back from everything because we get this picture from the Old Testament, can't, can't be in the presence of, and so if you're a sinful, ooh, stay away from me, brother, because I don't want to get infected, right? So we get this idea when we read just the Old Testament. We even despise the physical life, life in the body, Right, this idea, and I've mentioned this word all the time, Gnosticism, this idea that, that the flesh and everything, and everything physical is bad and only the spiritual, the inner life, is the only good thing. That's not, that's not biblical. That's not biblical at all. Right? The inner spiritual life is valued far and above actual acts of kindness and love. Right? The inner, oh, I'm really, really close with the Spirit. It's like I trump you because I'm super close with the Spirit, like this inner which isn't bad, which isn't bad, but it can't stop there. It can't stop there. Because then Jesus' prayer that we would be in the world but not of the world becomes impossible because we don't want to be in the world because the, whole, the world is unholy, it's dirty, it's yucky, it's messy, it's sinful, it's unclean, it's profane. 
So we pull ourselves from the world. And we can't do what Christ asks us to do. Be in the world. Got to be in the world, but not of it. We're going to come to that. In our partial understanding of holiness is just separation. The worst thing that happens is this beautiful creation that God called good is no longer good. Everything that you're looking at is bad. This is a bad creation. And yet God called everything good. And he called you very good. So don't, don't, be, don't be confused here. The second issue related to this first one, the tendency to think that the doctrine of God is fully developed and settled in the Old Testament. Any idea or discussion of the triune God is either missed altogether or it appears somewhat irrelevant as you read through the Old Testament. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll eventually get to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament will kind of talk about the Spirit, and sometimes I can read Jesus into it, but if you're just kind of skimming over it and you don't have a lot of whole background or anything like that, you're just going, wow, this God is radically different. <laughs> He's a different person altogether than this Jesus fellow. But they're the same. Jesus and the Holy Spirit only become relevant when we consider our salvation. And yet God has existed as the triune God way before I needed salvation, way before you needed salvation. So Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit have got to be more important than just our salvation. The picture that emerges just reading the Old Testament is just this hyper-strong and rather misleading monotheism, right? And I know, you know God is one, the Shema, and, and, and Jesus repeats it, and, and incredibly important, right? But God minus Jesus and the Holy Spirit isn't the God of the Bible. It's not the, it's not the God that the entire Bible describes. Now, I'm not saying, hear me what I'm not saying, or what I am saying. The Old Testament is absolutely essential to a Christian doctrine of God absolutely essential to a Christian understanding of God. But the Old Testament does not provide a fully Christian doctrine of God because Christ is kind of removed from the conversation as you read through the Old Testament. So it's not a fully Christian understanding of God, and therefore it cannot give us a fully Christian understanding of holiness. Minus Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's nothing but fear of God and self-loathing. This was a picture of an Old Testament people, scared to death of God and never being able to get a leg up on sin. Just a broken people that could never be healed. Just pardoned like every day. So let's look at holiness as presented by the whole Bible. First of all, much like love, holiness isn't a quality that you got within yourself, right? Holiness is a relative or a relational quality, and it can only exist in proximity to something else, right? As we looked at earlier, right, this holiness denotes like being other and kind of separated from, apart from. Now, if you take this step one step further, it's kind of a fine line, but it's very, very important. Being other requires something from which to be set apart. <laughs> that sounds so obvious, right? If you're an other, then there must be some other, Right? You can't be other all by yourself. There's, there's no such a thing. Right? You're, just, you're just single. And again, we see this right out of the gate. In the creation account, right? what was created isn't the same as the creator. The two are separate things. 
More importantly for our purposes this morning is how this understanding of holiness is going to relate to a triune God and how that understanding will relate to how we can live a holy life, how we can be holy even as God is holy. And the word picture, again, we've been dealing with and understanding triune God is that Greek dance, the perichoresis, right? We talked about this, how the early fathers, right, they said that's what the Trinity looks like, right? This, this mutual giving and receiving but when you think about it, that mutual giving and receiving doesn't happen automatically, right? It simply does not happen automatically. It requires holiness. It requires holiness to actually do that dance, to actually give and receive perfectly. So we have this idea of holiness and otherness and separation from, right, in the triune dance. But we need to look at three other aspects of holiness to get a complete biblical picture of what holiness is all about and how that dance of mutual giving and receiving is even possible. First is the idea of directional holiness. In the perichoresis, the three persons of the Trinity are others in perfect communion, right? They're for each other, right? They're 100% holy for each other. They're wholly separate, but they're holy for each other. Again, this suggests that the otherness and the separation of holiness is actually for the purpose of communion, not for the sake of isolation. Now, many of you separate yourselves from dangerous situations, right? The idea of separation is for isolation, right? You don't want to be in the middle of a riot, so you stay at home. You separate yourself from dangerous situations, but holy trinity and holy communion, this idea that we're for each other. We're separated not to be in isolation, but to actually have communion with each other. If we were identical, it wouldn't be a communion. It would be talking to yourself. <laughs> You'd be talking to yourself. So God, again, isn't just wholly separate from creation. He's wholly for creation. Right? He desires creation. He desires communion with his creation. And in the same way, only a person who is both not of the world and 100% for the world can participate in the holiness of God. Unless you are 100% not of this world and yet at the same time 100% for this world, the holiness of God is something that will remain far off. For you simply put, holiness is separation from an other for the sake of relationship with the other. Another way to say it, yet another way to say it, I love this one, this is best, it's, it's identity and vocation. Right? As identity, as who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, holiness is a call to be different from others. We are called to be different from the world. When the world does this or that, we do this and that. We're, we're different, not just for the sake of difference, but for the sake of holiness. Now, hold on, not, not just for the separation. But as a vocation, holiness is a call to make a difference for others. So we're called to be separate, and then we're called to rejoin for their benefit. He separates us and then he sends us back in. He pulls us out, prepares us, cleans us, washes us, and sends us back out. Holiness is a directional otherness, an otherness towards the other. And so we have the first two of four, four inseparable dimensions of holiness. There's relational holiness. There is no holiness without relational holiness, meaning simply um, you can't be holy all by yourself. Right? It requires another person. Right? You can give yourself a hickey. Right? You can do all that, but it's just not the same, right? It's just not the same. It's not the same. 
So relational holiness, right? It requires another. And then there's a directional holiness, simply meaning that once separate, the point of communion, the point is communion and not, not isolation, right? The holy otherness that maintains otherness but keeps others at an arm's distance isn't holiness at all. It's just snobbery and pride. So let's go back to Marty Gomez and my first kiss. As again, I truly believe is a, a beautiful picture of Holy Communion. And I want to credit uh, uh, Ryan Patrick McLaughlin. He's a professor of theology at Santa College School in Albany, New York, I believe. And he, he kind of developed this idea, and I'm, I'm straight stealing from him. So between me and, me, and, me and Marty, we had this relation. We had this otherness, holiness, right? She was clearly different from me, and I was very different from her, right? If it was just me and if it was just her, there would have been a no kiss, right? She would have been kissing her arm, or I would have been sucking on my, you know, whatever. Weird. And then there was also directional holiness. Being different from isn't enough to be holy, right? The distance between her and I had to be closed for communion to occur. One of us, <laughs> one of us had to lean into that distance, that difference between the two of us for the sake of communion, which leads us to the other two inseparable dimensions of holiness. There is no holiness but open holiness, right? As we all eventually learn, it's important that we don't cover the whole distance in that first kiss all by ourselves, right? As she leaned in, I reciprocated. I wasn't sure I wanted to, but I did. I was intrigued. She leaned and I leaned. To take a kiss by force, that's not a kiss. We have other words for that kind of thing. But for a true kiss to happen, you both kind of got to meet in the middle. Kind of both... As she leaned in, I leaned in. The true kiss is a mutual leaning in. We invite each other to the kiss, right? Sounds kind of crazy. We invite each other to the kiss. Holiness has no place for coercion or force. The leaning in is an invitation to share communion with another, but absolutely respecting the space of that other too. And then there's the inseparable other half of openness, it's vulnerability. Again, as we all eventually learn, this initial leaning in is fraught with danger. You know, I, I think about this a lot, right? As she leaned in, like she had to have known I could have flipped out. She had to have known, what, what, what am I going to do if Jerry starts screaming and yelling? What are you doing kissing me? And again, I don't know what I did. I'm 99.999% certain I didn't do anything mean. <laughs> Whatever that counts for. <laughs> As lots of us eventually learn, <clears throat> right, to lean into that distance and that difference, right, is both an invitation to communion, but it's also an invitation to risk rejection. I know you're all thinking about that first kiss, and some of those first kisses might have been rejected. A quick turn away. Whoa. <laughs> Jumped into that too fast. Whoa. I don't know if any of you had that experience. I, I never did, right? Just... What we have here then is a more complete biblical picture of holiness as demonstrated by Jesus Christ. Look at this in Romans chapter 5. Paul writes, as you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. He continues, verse 8, but God demonstrated his own love for, this, for us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He leaned in. 
knowing that many of us would go, oh, 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 no, no, thank you, Jesus. And he did it anyway. And he never stops leaning in. He never stops. He never stops, even while we were yet sinners. But it's worth it. Tragically, many people reject God leaning in. Right? They reject the kiss. They, they don't want to dance. And yet he still chooses to lean in. Two final practical suggestions as we move forward this morning. Number one, holiness requires reverence for the otherness of the other. You can't be holy while you're looking down on somebody. You can't be holy if you're looking down on somebody. If you're bagging on them, you're making fun of them, you, can't, you are not holy at that point. You can't say a prayer, Lord, thank you, Lord, I'm not one of them. Whew. That has no place in holiness. And this includes non-Christians, right? And the people that you know voted for the wrong guy. When we denigrate or bag on non-Christians, we devalue holiness. And the second piece of walking away practicality here, love and holiness are both costly. Right? For all the talk of holiness being about purity and cleanliness and the one who's holy is the one that risks getting dirty, the one that risks getting called out, being seen in the wrong company, going in where angels dare to tread. You read some of Paul's letters and he experiences rejection constantly. I don't know if you notice in all of his, nearly all of his letters, he'll have this little paragraph and you just feel, oh man, I'm sorry, Paul. So-and-so, I poured into them. I poured into them. I, I gave and I gave and they walked away. That's holiness. You give even when you know they might not respond. You give anyway. You lean in anyway. But also consider Jesus. Paul also writes this in the book of Philippians. I hope that spelled it right. Jesus Christ, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then in verse 8, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, knowing that we might not lean in and that we might reject him. We're worth it, he said. We're worth it. I want to close with a story I heard Years and years and years ago, I, I'll probably say it all wrong, but it's, it's going to work. <clears throat> a surgeon and his wife, his wife had cancer. And in order to take out this cancer, there would be nerves that would be cut along her cheekbone. And, and he knew that when the surgery was over, her face would, people might not want to kiss her anymore. And the writer of this story, and I, again, I don't remember who it was, he said he watched the surgeon through the glass windows as he leaned over his wife, and her face was dragging off on the side, and he could, the writer could see the surgeon twist up his face to make his lips match hers. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. Twisted himself so that he could meet us. 
want to encourage you this morning. People are going to want to love you. You're going to want to love people. Holiness is you being different from everybody else. Holiness is you being different but being for that somebody else. Holiness is you're open to them saying no, to them not maybe, you you being rejected. That's what holiness is. It's not sinless. It's love being perfected. And we are love being perfected by the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ. If you bow your heads, Father, thank you for your servants, Paul and Peter, and the things that they wrote that they recall you saying or, or that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write, Father, that, that when we read closely, we finally understand that, that we can be holy too. We can be what God expects and created us to be. So, Father, we, we thank you. We thank you f- for creating us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for continuing to guide us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we love you. We give you all the praise and glory and honor. In your name we pray. Amen.